Alright, put your hand up if anyone has ever said to you at any point in time in your life, you're deluded. Come on, fess up. You are deluded. You're living some weird delusion. Well, let me tell you what a delusion is. A delusion is a belief held with strong conviction despite superior evidence to the contrary. Okay? A delusion is a belief held with strong conviction despite superior evidence to the contrary. And I want to suggest to you that many, many, many people live in a delusion or a delusional state. We uh, often uh, refer, or maybe I often refer to uh, one of the unpaid pastors in this church, and that's uh, this guy here, Richard Dawkins. He's an atheist. Um, The really interesting thing, this is an article, I just want to read it off the screen here for a minute, but this is an article that was in the Telegraph Uh, Only a little while ago, April the 16th, 2014, the title is, Is Richard Dawkins Leading People to Jesus? That would be a good outcome, wouldn't it? Yeah. My school friend Michael, an atheist for decades, rang me the other night and told me he'd returned to the Catholic Church and you'll never guess who converted me, he said. Your wife? No, it was Richard Dawkins. He explained that he was and is a huge admirer of Dawkins, the biologist. I'm with him there. I read The Blind Watchmaker when it first came out and was blown away. But then I read The God Delusion and it was total crap. (laughs) So bad that I started questioning my own atheism. (laughs) Now, this, I think, atheism fits into the category of uh, the definition of delusion that I gave you earlier, that it's a belief held with strong conviction despite superior evidence to the contrary. True? And I, I think... I think, uh, I think, here we go, I'll put it on the record. I think Richard Dawkins is deluded. Okay? And some of you might, oh, it's a bit arrogant, is it? Well, come to church to hear someone have an opinion, right? You just heard an opinion, you can go now if you want. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully it'll get better. But here's the thing. God, I think God maintains through the scriptures that often human beings live in a delusion, See, one of the things we looked at, uh, if you weren't here last week, we looked at the fact that people are given to false worship. And their, their worship of false gods and idols actually becomes a form of self-harm. Because idols have a particularly uh, devastating effect on the people that worship them. Well, this week what we're looking at out of Hebrews is the fact is that God's calling all of you to live in a reality and to live in His reality. And the problem is a lot of the time that we don't always live in his reality. I think myself personally, I mean, this has been a battle for me this week, is to say, God, help me to live in your reality because I'm living in some alternate reality. And I'm just letting you know, in case you hadn't noticed, when you live in an alternate reality that's not God's reality, it's never as good. Never as good. So continually through the scriptures, what you've actually got is you've got God saying to people, come and live in my reality. See, the Bible tells you about what God's like, it tells you about what you're like, and it tells you about the kingdom and the reality that God wants you to live in. He wants you to live in a present reality that you don't probably consider as much as you ought, and He wants you to think about a future reality that you can't even imagine how good it is. He's calling you to live in a present reality that's better than a past reality. This will all make sense in a minute. The really difficult thing for us a lot of the time is that Romans 1 verse 24 and 25 is pretty true of us. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies. 
among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for what? For a lie, all right? That's a delusion, all right? The tendency of humanity is we'd rather live in a delusion than live in the truth. We'd rather live in a delusion than live in the actual reality. And Richard Dawkins would want to say to you, he would say to you things like, there's no such thing as good and evil, there's no such thing as morality, there's just bad luck. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time, I'm sorry. You got beat up and you got murdered. You shouldn't have been there, maybe. I don't know, maybe it was just chance. All right, that's a delusion. God says there is good, there is evil, there is morality. But the thing is for us that it's easy to live in in an alternate reality. And I don't, please don't hear me in any way, I don't mean in any way to be uh, giving a hard time on it. God's reality is the best reality to live in and he continually invites you to come and join him in that reality. You see, every time human beings set up alternate forms of reality, um, it just becomes a bad, bad thing for them. One of the things I heard recently is the fact that you always live in a kingdom. The question is, whose kingdom do you live in? Or what kingdom do you live in? Let me tell you about a kingdom. A kingdom generally has a place, like there's somewhere where the kingdom exists. There's usually a king in it. And a lot of the kingdoms that we live in, when we're not living in God's kingdom, we live in a kingdom where the king's a tyrant and gives us a hard time and doesn't help us. There's citizens to the kingdom, there's a legal system, there's punishment, there's cultural values. And the tendency for humanity to a large degree is I'm going to set up my own kingdoms and live in that. And it has its own religious system, its own legal system, its own set of moral right and wrongs. And most of the time, it's usually very oppressive. So let me ask you at this point, what is the kingdom that you live in? What about now? I mean, I think it's entirely possible that some of us are a little bit deluded when we've come into church today. We're living in a reality that's not exactly the one that God wants you to be in. Who's the king of your kingdom? What are the values of the kingdom that you live in when you're not living with a recognition of living in God's kingdom? Is your kingdom a kingdom that brings slavery? Or does it bring freedom? Does your kingdom bring the the alternate reality of the kingdom you live in? Does it bring uh, peace? Or does it bring fear and anxiety? How exciting is it? Is it a living kingdom? Well, we're now going to move on to Hebrews. So if you've got your Bibles here, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. The verses I'm going to read will be on the screen. Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 21. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said... I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, 
sorry, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I think there's three things that the author of Hebrews teaches us in this section about reality, and they're this. The past reality is but a shadow. The new reality, he teaches us about the new reality, and he teaches us to not refuse the new reality. Here's point number one. The past reality is but a shadow. Follow it through with me again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This... uh, section of Hebrews is referring to an Old Testament time where the Israelites had left Egypt and they'd come to Mount Zion. Sorry, they'd come to Mount Sinai. And they've come and it's going to be this time where Moses is actually going to come and he's going to meet with God. And it was a fearful expression of God's, God's presence. And what I'd love you to do if you've got your Bibles, I want to read through the whole of Exodus chapter 19. So if you can open that up. That'd be really good because I think it'll give you a good feel for what's happening there. So just to give you a bit of a placeholder, uh, Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. And in Exodus 20 is what? Ten Commandments, all right, good. So this is a lead up to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Has everyone got a Bible they can look at, maybe? Or a friend who's got a Bible they can look at? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits around them 
for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Hopefully you can see the connection here to Hebrews. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, clearly with an arrow. Right? No one's going to have a Glock pistol at uh, Mount Sinai. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the uh, trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Anyway, let's not go into that. Not because women are bad, by the way. On the morning of the third day, this is on the screen now. Uh, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Can you imagine this? You're standing there at the bottom of the hill. The cloud comes in. There's a loud trumpet blast. There's a cracking storm happening at the top of this thing. There's something clearly happening that's not just a natural event and the people are physically shaking down in the camp at the bottom of the mountain. This is a really fearful thing. Now, we can actually get really accustomed to Jesus being approachable and loving and God being like that. And God for sure is like that. But you just need to know throughout the scriptures that there are other times that God shows up and he's not like that. He's a bit scary. All right. So much so that people actually shake a bit. Now what happens next is really interesting. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Isn't that interesting? They're already shaking for fear because God's, in the true sense of the word, is awesome. And Moses says, you guys got to come closer to the one that is so awesome, that's amazing, that makes you shake. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So now we don't just have people shaking, we've got the mountain shaking as well. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. This is an amazing scene, is it not? An amazing scene, a fearsome scene. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Can you imagine how much guts this guy Moses has got? The, the mountain's shaking, there's smoke all over the place, there's cloud, there's a massive big thunderstorm happening. There's a loud trumpet. Moses is calling out. God's talking back and God says, come here. Now, every human instinct in you might go, I'm not coming near to that because that's scary. But here's the thing. This is a really important thing when you look at the scariness of God is if, the, if, if God's that strong and he's that powerful and he loves you, there's no better place to go than to be in his presence and to be covered by him. Does that make sense? Because no one even gets close to the kind of care and protection that you're going to get by, being, by hiding yourself in God. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And this is a good reminder for us. Jesus, for sure, has made a way for us to get to God. But you never, ever come to God on your terms. It's always on his terms. 
And you know, one of the terms that's really critical in coming to God that I think people miss out is the terms of humility. You don't come with your agenda. You're not the one that makes the rules. And I think Exodus 19 is a good refresher to us is that God calls us to come, with, come to him on his terms with humility. Now, will God be kind and gracious and loving toward us? Absolutely he will. There's no question. But he tends not to be like that toward people who come to him on their terms. You've got to do this. You've got to fit in with my plans. If you don't do what I want you to do, I'm out. That's not how he works. And the Lord said to him, verse 24, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. This is a fearsome reality, isn't it? About God. Now the really interesting thing, and I think it's a good thing, but there's a lot of longing in our hearts is I just would want to see God. One of my sons um, a number of months ago said to me, I went into his room and he actually said, Daddy, I'm really disappointed. And I said, why are you disappointed? He goes, because I prayed and I asked Jesus to let me see him and he didn't do it. And you know, there's, there's this, that's really beautiful and I really encourage my son that he's, he's got this hankering to see God. And you know, I've got that hankering to see God. Do you? You just like to see him? And, and you know what? One day you will. One day you will see him. But I'll just submit to you, and I'll, not in a harmful way, I'll just submit to you, when you get to see God, he doesn't always show up the way that you expect him to show up. God tends to have a way of breaking our religious views of who he is and what he's like. If you've still got your Bibles open at uh, Exodus 19, flick across to Exodus 20 and verse 18. This is straight after the Ten Commandments have been given. Listen to this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. You see the difference here? In the previous chapter, they were seeing the stuff that was going on and it sounded like there was a bit of a threat that they were going to try and get up there to see God. Now all of a sudden they've been given the Ten Commandments, they've seen a little bit, a bit more of a pretty awesome show and they've just gone, we're out, <laughs> all right? We're out, they've changed their mind. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What's really odd about Hebrews chapter 12 is it actually goes on a step further and it says Moses himself was terrified. Now that's really interesting because some of you who know your Bibles, you'd be thinking about Moses, you know that Moses, it actually says that God spoke with Moses as a man speaks with his friend. Probably of all the Old Testament characters, he's one of the Old Testament characters with the highest level of intimacy when it comes to his relationship with God. And so to some extent, this is a little odd to us. We see this in... uh, Hebrews 12, 21, 
It says, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, let me take you to the section in the Old Testament account where Moses was actually fearful. Let's have a quick look at it. It's on the screen there, if you can squint hard enough to see it. He says, I lay prostrate, prostrate, there you go. That's a good one, isn't it? All right. I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. Now what he's talking about is he's talking about his response to the people setting up the golden calf, an idol to worship instead of the real God. He says, I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you'd committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. Do you hear that? Now listen, this is really important. You note what Moses does. But the Lord listened to me that time also. What does he do? He's in a situation where his people have just caused, have really stirred God up. Like he's really cranky, rightly so. He's not flying off the handle. He's really cranky with what they've done. And what does Moses do? He goes closer to the cranky one. Because he knows that's his greatest hope. He knows that's where you need to get. You need to get to the one who's powerful and who's fearful because he's also the one who's loving. He's also the one who can do something about things. He's also the one that can protect and can save. Verse 20, And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down the mountain. God is awesome. Awe is reverence mixed with fear. That's what it ought to inspire in us. It ought to inspire in us this respect for him. But we've also got to remember that God's awesomeness is not meant to repel us, it's meant to draw us to him. You don't go away from God and say, he's going to hurt me. He only gets cranky with people that run away from him. The people that come to him, he accepts and and he responds to them. But it's never, I think on judgment day, when Jesus comes back, is there going to be a real sense of grace? Is Is there going to be the kindness of God expressed to me? Absolutely there will be, and it'll, it'll be expressed to you too. But it's not just going to be that, it's going to be a fearsome day. C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when he was talking about Aslan the Lion, he said, he wrote there, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave and the most or else just silly. This is so true when it comes to God. And we need to remember by the example of Moses that fear and respect is not incompatible with love. Moses was terrified, but he kept moving toward the one that he loved and the one that loved him. He moved toward God for the sake of the people. You see, when a fearsome person is loving to those who take refuge in them, they're actually very safe in their care. True? There's a sense in which which God would say to us, I've got your back when we hide in him. I'm covering you. I'm helping you. 
And there's probably a little bit of a warning here from me. There's a sense in which uh, maybe some of you have thought, man, it would have been cool to be back in the Exodus to see God doing all that stuff. Well, you know, the writer of Hebrews is saying it's actually cooler where you are right now. The place that you're in right now, the reality that you get to live in right now is much, much better. There's, uh, I'm not sure, has anyone here read Oz Guinness? Any books by Oz Guinness? Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a very, I think his background is sociology or something, but he's a very, very good thinker. He's kind of a similar kind of genre to, uh, to C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called God in the Dark, where he talked about the, uh, the different sources of doubt that Christians uh, will have in their lives. And he makes this really interesting comment um, in his section on, uh, on doubt because of people's views of God. And here's what he says. He says, true faith is always iconoclastic. An iconoclast is someone who shatters religious images. He says, everything in our hearts and minds that is less or other than God must be smashed, for it is not God. As C.S. Lewis wrote, images of the holy easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. And so Guinness here is saying that God's gig is to actually continually with us shatter the religious view that we have of God and then rebuild it. Because most of you probably heard the saying, uh, we can be pretty good at putting God in a box. True? He doesn't fit in a box. I think that's a large part of the reason why God doesn't like um, false images of him because no image is ever good enough to capture who he is. In fact, such a shattering is the mark of true prayer. The most blessed result of prayer would be to rise thinking, but I never knew before. I never dreamed. I suppose it was at such a moment that Thomas Aquinas said of all his own theology, it reminds me of straw. And I wonder whether that's experience when you spend time... Is that your experience when you spend time with God? Do you, do you finish and you go, I never knew he was like that? You know, and sometimes we can be at the extreme where we kind of think God's this big scary one. He's, he's, uh, you just got to be fearful and respectful of him. All right. And you can kind of be out on that extreme and that's not helpful. And then you can be out on the other extreme that God's all love and kisses all the time and miss the fearfulness of him. And what you actually see in Moses is you see those two things come together. But the big idea out of Hebrews is the writer wants you to know you've got a better reality that you can live in now than that one back then. Anyone say amen to that? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I'd really like to be standing at the foot of Sinai when all that sort of stuff's going on. I'd be one of the ones in the pack probably thinking I need to get back to my tent and change my underwear, right? Because it'd be, it, it's, it would be a fearful time, all right? It would be a scary time. All right, we're going to move on now to the second point, which is a new reality. And what you've got to realize in Hebrew is that the, the writer wants you to know that the old reality in the Old Testament around Sinai is a reflection or a shadow of the actual reality that exists in heaven. All right, don't freak out about that just yet. All right, but it's a shadow of it, right? So it's kind of a little bit like it, but it's not exactly the same. Now, what we need to move on to now is the second point here is that Jesus has actually brought a new reality for us. And what I want you to, what I want to introduce you to in theological terms, if you haven't heard of it before, is the whole already not yet theological idea. Here's the idea. 
It goes like this. There are a lot of truths about God that have already started in Christ, but they haven't reached their fullness and they're not fully, they haven't culminated fully and reached completeness. Uh, Another way that theologians talk about it is they talk about the now and the not yet. And uh, I think you'll see that when we read the section out of Hebrews that we're moving on to here. Follow with me on the screen, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come. Can someone tell me what tense that is? Present tense. It's present tense. All right? People go, oh, I didn't say present. Don't worry about if you got it wrong. Okay? Present tense. You presently come. You're actually in this present reality. All right? This is way better. All right? If you want to get excited about something, you've got to get excited about this. This is a far better reality. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What's festal mean? Having a party, all right? Celebration, okay? This is the reality that we live in, folks. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, some of you are going, uh, can someone point out where the angels are? <laughs> All right. Can someone please uh, tell me how I can see Jesus or see God, the judge? So here's the point. We live in a now, not yet. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying you're in it now but it's not yet complete it's already started this is exactly what um, John said in uh, John 5 24 uh, sorry Jesus said in John he said uh, truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life so anyone here who trusts in Jesus to forgive them of their disobedience and follows God Eternal life's already started. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. It actually starts when you, by faith, put your trust in Christ. And I would appeal to you today that if you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus, it could start for you today. A sure and certain blissful future that starts now can happen this very day. So I want to go through very quickly the different facets that the writer of Hebrews talks about there in terms of what the new reality is. The first one is you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you know Mount Zion was seen as the place where God dwelt? And in the Old Testament, Jerusalem and Zion tend to become quite synonymous in the Old Testament. You know what God's saying is that you've actually come to the city. When you, come, when you become a Christian, you've actually come to the place where God dwells. If I was to ask you today, where does God dwell, what would you say? In us. In us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 makes it clear that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now for an Old Testament person, an Old Testament Jew, this is shocking. This is shocking. But there's a sense in which if you belong to Jesus and you follow Jesus and you trust in Jesus by faith to forgive you of your disobedience to God and then you come to church, you've come to where God dwells. You're part of the family of 
people who are the temple where God dwells. And, you know, part of the biggest problem with uh, helping people, I find, is helping people to live in the true reality. I'm doing some counselling with some people at the moment. This, this just comes up time and time and time again. It's like, could you just come back and live in the reality? And I think that's a large part of what counselling's all about, right? And pastoral carers, it's like, okay, so you're living over here in this reality. I'm going to do everything I can to bring you back to live in the true reality. You see, a lot of times we're like billionaires who don't know it, rummaging in an industrial bin for some dinner. True? This is amazing. We've come to where, God, to where God actually dwells. We're citizens of this city, but we're not living in it fully yet. We have lots of benefits of citizenship, but not the full reality. I read this one commentary about this uh, section out of Hebrews, and he made this comment. He said, How different is this concept of heaven from that of Hinduism, for example? Here, heaven is depicted as a city with life, activity, interest and people as opposed to the Hindu ideal of heaven as a sea into which human life returns like a raindrop to the ocean. This is a vibrant, vibrant city and you've got to realise that you actually live in that city and you're a citizen of it now but it's actually going to come in its fullness one day and you're not going to get a sore back from worshipping all the time, all right? It's going to be grand. I think the best way to think about what the new earth is going to be like is what the earth looked like in the first place. Are there going to be views? Yeah, there's going to be views. Are there going to be amazing natural things? I think so. There's just going to be lots of cool stuff happening. There's going to be cities and people living in in communities together. It's going to be great. You take every bad thing out of this planet and you leave all the good stuff and God recreating the earth is going to torch it and recreate it so that it's just going to be perfect. Why wouldn't you want to be there? you're not a Christian today why wouldn't you become a Christian and want to be there why wouldn't you become a Christian and be in a community where God lives and he's active and he's moving why wouldn't you the second thing that the author there says is he says that there's innumerable angels in festal gathering now that would be cool Listen to this, this is Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. I want to give you a bit of a picture of this. The Lord came down from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. All right, just stop there. You get to heaven, there's ten thousand angels having a party. Smile. Because you will, right? You're all going. Won't you smile? I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Now, the interesting thing is, just to shatter some illusions you might have, there's no record anywhere in the scriptures of a female angel, all right? And you just seem to know most of the uh, angels' work is going out and giving people their comeuppance, all right? So they're out doing so. I mean, you get into the book of Revelation and the jobs that the angels are given to do, it's pretty brutal stuff, right? So actually rocking up to heaven and you get there, and there's a hundred thousand male angels just going nuts having a party. That would be good, wouldn't it? And you're going, what would they be doing? Would they be drunk? No, they wouldn't be drunk. All right. I don't know what they'd be doing. What do angels do when they have a party? I don't know. But they're having a party. 
Listen to this, Daniel 7, 9 to 10. You guys aren't excited enough. Maybe this is a really bad message today. Is it okay? (laughs) As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Listen to this. A thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Angels. Not cranky. You get it? They're not going to be cranky. Everyone, after, after three, say your name. One, two, three. Excellent. So they, what they're going to do is they're going to, you're just going to, Peter, how are you going? I've been waiting. You know, we've been waiting. We're having, do you want to come? So we've got a seat for you. And there's just a big party going on. Who wants that? Oh. <laughs> Who wants it? Yeah. yeah, come on. That's better. All right? Now listen, if you lived in the reality that that was coming, you'd be different, wouldn't you? You'd be different. If you lived in the reality that one day I'm actually going to live in a place and God's going to be right there. And maybe a little bit like the Garden of Eden where it says that he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day in Genesis 3. Maybe he's going to walk in a garden in the cool of the day and I'm going to be able to have a stroll with him. That would be good, wouldn't it? All the while there's this massive noise going on. You're telling the angels to turn the music down because you can't hear God properly, right? Because they're having this rocking party over there. It's going to be good. Why wouldn't you want it? I'll tell you, the only reason you wouldn't want it is probably because you've been deluded. All right? You've been tricked by something. All right. The next thing it says is we come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know, it's a little bit of a tricky one for the commentators to explain, but let me give you uh, the best understanding of it that I've got. It's a sense in which, uh, well, Christ is the firstborn, but when we actually become connected to Jesus, we become the firstborn. And Revelation 21, 27 is clear about the names that are written down in the Lamb's book of life. So you become part of Jesus' family, you become connected to Jesus, you become one of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Does that make sense? That's exciting. I think about it right now, that there's somewhere, somewhere in God's reality, a book somewhere that's got your name in it, if you love him. Is that good? And he, doesn't, he knows your name. And it's written down. And you don't have to worry about it. It's written down. And he doesn't sit there, I don't think he sits there with the rubber, rubbing your name out, and then scratching it back in every now and then. You know? Oh, Peter, he... Uh, he said, prostate instead of prostrate. All right, I'm, I'm going to rub him out. All right? I don't know. Maybe the last five minutes have been all good, so he scratched my name back in. Do you get what I'm saying? It's either in the book or it's not in the book. Come on. It's good. And the next bit that the uh, writer of Hebrews says, and you've come to God, the judge of all. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this, I mean, this is a heart's cry if you're a Christian, right? Who's with me on this? You just want to get to God. I think it's first Peter talks about how Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the unrighteous, sorry, the righteous for the unrighteous to get you to, to God, right? That's why he died. The whole gig, yeah, the party with the angels is going to be good, right? 
Yeah, it's good to be in a city and be, have, be a citizen in a place where God's active and he's moving. But you know what's even better than that? It's just getting to God, having a sit down with God, sitting on his lap. My boys and I give Jesus a rumble, all right? I saw that they talk about it. And they talk about, we've been having a lot of chats about heaven. A couple of my boys are just going, because I said on one day, I probably shouldn't have said it, it's not biblical, all right? And some of you are going, oh man, he's a guy preaching. But I said, you know what, I reckon you might be able to have a ride on a cheetah. <laughs> all right? They're just going, how cool is that? I'm going to be on the back of an animal that's going to go 100 k's an hour. And it's not going to hurt me. But you get the idea. The idea is it's going to be good. It's going to be so good. And you're going to get to be with God. And you know, all those questions that you've got, that you want God to answer that he hasn't answered yet, there's going to be plenty of time to ask, isn't there? See, just ask him. See, God's never been afraid of people asking questions. It's just that he doesn't always answer all the questions that we've got. He answers a lot of them, but he doesn't answer all of them. And there's going to be plenty of time for you to ask those questions. It says also in uh, Hebrews 12 there, enter the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Imagine being with Christians, imagine being with people who are children of God that love him, that are perfected. Won't that be good? If you've ever been married, you know you have moments with people that you really love that are really irritating. True? And you have moments where you really irritate people by the way that you do things. But you know what? There's going to be a place that you're going to get to, and it starts now, but there's going to be a place you're going to get to where the irritation's not going to be there anymore. There's not going to be you having a thing in your head, plan B, because you think someone's going to let you down. I've got to work out what I'm going to do if this person doesn't do what I'm hoping that they're going to do. They're going to be trustworthy. They're going to be perfected. They're not going to let you down. They're not going to backbite. They're not going to gossip. They're not going to disappoint you. You're going to be in a community of people that have been made perfect. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that the reality we live in is coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this uh, is a reference to uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. I'm just going to read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. This is, I'm just telling you, on a personal level, this is the, one of the verses in the Bible that I love the most. No one's going to have to tell anyone else, no God. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And you know, there's a sense in which that's already started, Right? that those who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who are part of his family, they've already on the track of knowledge of God and God teaches them direct through the scriptures and through his Holy Spirit. And the last section there out of uh, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now I was thinking about this this week 
Go with me on this one. This is a bit of a... Every now and then I say something that I haven't read anywhere. So you just got to be careful with it. You've got to measure it, all right? But I was thinking about this this week. The whole story of uh, Cain and Abel is that they both brought an offering to God, all right? Now, my understanding is that Abel's offering was one that was the killing of an animal and Cain's offering was an offering of grain, all right? Now, what's really interesting about uh, what happened there is uh, Abel's offering was accepted, Cain's offering wasn't. So Cain got envious and jealous and he went and whacked his brother on the head and killed him, all right? And he slaughtered him. And that's the whole thing, like, uh, do you know where your brother is? You know, it's like, why should I know where my brother is? You know, am I my brother's keeper? That's that whole kind of line there. So I want you to think about it. What you've got way back with Cain and Abel is Abel offers a sacrifice to God that is pleasing and acceptable and he gets murdered for it. All right? So probably what his death says, what his blood says, is it cries out for punishment. It cries out for retribution. It cries out for, for anger and wrath against that act, right? Is everyone with me on that? Then you've got Jesus comes and what does he do? He offers himself as the offering. He also offers an offering that's pleasing to God. But what actually happens? Well, people murder him. You see that? In both cases, you've actually got murder. But in this case back here, what happens is the blood cries out for restitution. In this one here, it takes all the punishment so that there's no cry for restitution anymore by Jesus on the cross. Does that make sense? And that's a... Are you with me on that? That's a far better word, isn't it? It's like the blood. You, 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 don't, want a word, you don't want blood. You don't want the, the last blood to be blood that's saying, get them. <laughs> All right? And that's kind of Abel a little bit. It's like Abel's blood is like, get them for doing this. But the blood of Jesus is like, they got him. And that means there's no get them anymore. All right? Because Jesus has paid for it all. So... The last most significant blood that's, that's been shed is Jesus' blood and it quashes and it squelches out the cry for retribution and wrath and justice. Point three. The writer of Hebrews says, you live in such an amazing reality that you ought not refuse it. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So how can you refuse him who speaks? Well, I think one of the ways that you can refuse him who speaks by the context is you can focus on things that have been made. Because the big idea of this section of Hebrews is uh, the writer saying, look, at the end of it all, God's going to come back and he's going to shake everything and everything that can't be shaken will, re- shaken will be remain, will remain and that that can be shaken will be destroyed and it'll fall away. 
And I think, I've, I've been thinking about this, I, I think probably that we can be in seasons where it's really easy and, and you, can, you, you can respond to God and you're listening to God and you're in touch with God and you're walking with the Holy Spirit and, and He's teaching you stuff and you're responding to Him and you're understanding the Scriptures and the words are flying off the page. But also I think you can be in seasons where you think you know better, where you don't listen to him. And this is a story that we actually see the whole way through the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, is we actually see the people of God thinking that they know better a lot of the time. Sometimes we can think we don't need to listen. We can shut our ears. We can think that we know better. I met up with someone this week and... um, without giving anything identifiable about them. I met up with someone this week and they uh, just talked about their habit of continually talking to God through the day in prayer, which I think is a really good habit. But uh, then I just asked them about how they were going with reading the Scriptures. And they weren't going so well with reading the Scriptures. And you know the problem, I think it's a great thing. I think uh, Christians ought to have a broadband connection to God, not a dial-up, all right? Which means you're just connecting with Him all the time. But if you don't ever have a time where God has the opportunity to come in through the Scriptures and actually reframe the, what you think, it's very easy just to get caught up in your own thoughts. And you can get caught up somehow in only remembering Scriptures about God that you like. Alright? And I'm not saying it's not the Holy Spirit that does that sometimes, but God just wants to continually keep refreshing us and reframing us. And one of the key ways that God wants to do that is through you reading the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit speaking through them. And I think if you don't do that, there's almost a, a bit of an assumption there. It's like, I can work this out. I actually don't need to listen to you that much. And the thing is that God wants to do an amazing work inside of you. And he's far, far better than you think. You hear me on that? He's far, far better than you think. There's not one person here who's got a conceptual idea of who God is that's even within cooey of how good he is. And the only way that you're going to continually be refreshed is by your time reading the Scriptures. This is, this, this is one of my big problems. See, the Proverbs talk about people who depend upon their own wisdom, don't they? And their own understanding. I think this is probably a way bigger problem than what we think. This whole thing about refusing the one who speaks. You know, sometimes, I'll say this to myself, it may apply to you, sometimes we just need to shut up and do what we're told as Christians. Is that true? And so what do you need to think about it? This is my thing, you know. I'd have a situation come up and clearly God's saying, this is what you need to do in this. And I think, well, I'm just going to have a bit of a think about it for a bit. What do I need to think about it? Why can't I just do it? He's going, if you just do this, what's actually going to happen is you're going to end up in a place that we looked at last week where there's the peaceful fruit of holiness. So just do it. You just go, no, I just want to work it out. I want to work out why. You know, and sometimes God tells why. And sometimes he helps you to understand why. But a lot of times he just says, just go and do it, can you? Do I love it? Yes. Yes, you do. Uh, Am I really wise? Yeah, you are really wise, God. Um, do I ever tell you to do anything dumb? No, you never tell me to do anything dumb. Um, do you want the best? Do, do you want the best for me? Yeah, I want the best for you. All right. 
So just do what he says. I shouldn't say just, should I? Because it's never just, is it? It'd be nice if it was, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? I just went and did it. Just went and did it. Didn't rely on my own wisdom, just went and did it. One day, what's going to happen is there's going to be another theophany. All right? I'm just going to give you a quick education, wrap up and finish. A a theophany is when God appears. All right? Now, when you read the scriptures, you'll see that there's a whole bunch of theophanies. All right? Where God shows up. Now, there's some particular characteristics uh, that theologians have identified that are key components of theophanies. All right? So one day, Jesus is going to come back. That's a given, all right? He's going to show up and he's going to be visible. There's going to be another theophany. It will be the ultimate and the end theophany for this world, all right, as we know it, until he recreates it. So what tends to happen in a theophany is that God shows up. He tends to either show up to save or to judge, There's some kind of proclamation that goes on in the theophany. There's usually fear associated with it. You can see this in Exodus, what we've read earlier today, but you can also see this when the disciples actually see Jesus. The place that God shows up becomes holy and there's the upheaval of nature, all right? And that's what you actually saw in the stuff that we read out of Exodus, And what we find in uh, this section out of uh, Hebrews is there's going to be one more theophany. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that speak of Old Testament theophanies. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Psalm 68 verse 7 to 8. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God the God of Israel Isaiah 2 verse 19 to 21 and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they've made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah thirteen thirteen. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Haggai 2 verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. God is going to come and he's going to shake stuff. All right? When he shows up, it's going to be a fearful and a terrifying time, albeit a time where those who love him will be saved. And the things that are going to get shaken are the things that are created, according to Hebrews. So I just ask you as a bit of a challenge in closing. Where do you invest all of your time? Do you invest all your time in things that can be shaken or things that can't be shaken? Now, I know that there's a lot of people in this room. I don't, I don't in any way want to sound negative like I'm, I'm down on you because I know that there's a lot of people in this room that are investing in things that can't be shaken. That's a wise investment, isn't it? That's a wise investment. 
And I'd encourage you, if you're not investing wisely, invest wisely. Invest in something that can't be shaken. The things that can be shaken are the things that you can see, created things. The things that can't be shaken most of the time are the things that are going to last. And you better believe that imagination is a really key part of faith. You need to be able to see things that you can't see. Because there's a reality, there's a stupendous reality that you need to live in. And some of you, probably a lot of you, are living to some extent in that reality and God would be calling you, live in it more. Live with a growing awareness of living in that reality. See, I talked about this at the project a while ago. See, imagination in humans is mostly used to see things that are actually true, not mostly used to see things that are untrue. So I could sit here and I could point to a tree out there and I could say, look, that tree out there is undergoing photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide's going in, oxygen's coming out, it's creating sugars for the plant. You with me? Okay? And you can't see that, but you just saw it in your head. In three months' time, three or four months' time, those trees out there, that are just, they're going to start losing their leaves soon. You know they're going to have buds coming out. You can't see the buds, but you can, can't you? Because that's what the imagination does. What you realise is that the imagination is mostly used to see things that are real. And God would say to you, use your imagination to see the things that are real and to live in the real reality. There's a news article, I'm going to close on this. There's a news article on CNN. A Japanese soldier who hunkered down in the jungles of the Philippines for nearly three decades, refusing to believe that World War II had ended, has died in Tokyo. This is him. In 1944, Onoda was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on US forces in the area. Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in the latter stages of the war, but Onoda a lieutenant evaded capture. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered in the face of oncoming American forces, Onoda and a few fellow holdouts hid in the jungles, dismissing messages saying that the war was over. For 29 years, he survived on food gathered from the jungle or stolen from local farmers. After losing his comrades to various circumstances, Onoda was eventually persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974. 29 years, maybe 28 years, he was deluded into thinking that the reality was that he was still at war with people and he fought a war that didn't exist anymore. His former, listen to this, his former commanding officer travelled to Lubang to see him and tell him he was released from his military duties. He wouldn't believe it. There were all leaflets that he saw around the place and he thought it was all a trick. And so he went on fighting a war that wasn't on anymore for 28, 29 years. And I think that's the guts of what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's going, don't want to go, don't desire to go back to the Old Testament. Here's the present reality, live in it. Don't live in an alternate reality. Don't fight a war 
Don't be engaged in stuff that's long gone. And God would say to you today, don't be persuaded to live in the reality of created things in this world, live in his reality, in his kingdom. Why don't you pray with me? God, we don't want to be deluded. And God, you know, it's been a fight for me personally this week not to be deluded. Because there's created things this week that have occupied my thinking. Things that can be shaken and will be shaken. So God, you've been calling me back to reality. And God, you're calling all of us back to live in reality, to live in the kingdom, to live with the presence of you in us and in people around us and to look forward to an unbelievable future, unbelievable future. And God, I pray that it would fuel our passion and our desire and our obedience to you. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that's not following you and doesn't know you, God, I pray that today that their future would be assured. God, that you'd show them all the things that they're putting their effort in into that are going to come to nothing. God, there's so many things that we all put our effort into that are ultimately going to come to nothing. I pray that you'd help us to be people who invest wisely, invest in the things that won't be shaken. And God, for all those here today that are doing that, I pray your blessing upon them. And I pray that you'd help them to be courageous and to pursue even harder the things that cannot be shaken. And God, that you do amazing, amazing works through them as they focus on things that cannot be shaken. They don't focus on houses and they don't focus on cars and they don't focus on bank accounts and they don't focus on acquisition of stuff. They don't focus on investments. They don't focus on food. They don't focus on shopping, but they focus on what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal. And God, I pray that you'd move us all in that direction, that we'd be more and more, we'd become more and more concentrated at focusing on what is unseen, at focusing on what cannot be shaken. And we just want to finish now, Lord, by just saying we're just really sorry. Because you deserve that kind of attention. Your kingdom deserves that kind of attentiveness. We just ask that you forgive us for our inattentiveness and that you'd restore us to attentiveness to the things that really matter. Amen.